0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we've just sung our confession of how much we need you, and even as, as we open up your word this morning, we acknowledge again our need of you for your Holy Spirit to awaken our spirits and to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes to take away the shades of our mind that cloud and hide truth and even in our wills, Lord, where resistance takes place at different levels of our being where we, we resist you because of pride or whatever we pray now that uh, in our need of you, Lord Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would come and, and meet us and bless uh, your word to your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me right now, and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. You'll see it, excuse me, you'll see it on the overhead uh, behind me, and it's also on number 622 in the hymn book, if you care to turn to that, but uh, let's read together in unison. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead." I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. For centuries, uh, God's people have recited that creed to declare some of the eternal truths that are part of the faith that we have built our security on. Last week as we began to look at the book of Ephesians, I mentioned to us that indeed today we are living in an age when Christians face a lot of insecurity. I quoted last week from a study that was done uniquely in Canada of over 1,000 young people in the millennial age bracket, which means someone that was born between 1980 and 2000 and in that age bracket it's this study showed that in Canada for every 3 that that in that age bracket that grew up going to church part of a church that for every 3 there's only one that still is part of a church regularly and that then i concluded that that in the midst of that we see and i quoted some other articles about this that that quoted that uh, said that we really see a group of people that have a hidden faith And uh, many of the other two of the three that don't attend the church regularly speak of their faith being important, but it's a hidden faith. I believe that that comes from an insecurity in two ways, I said last week. First of all, it comes from an insecurity in not knowing really my identity of how I belong to God, how I belong to Christ. That's a fundamental who I am kind of statement. And that's the vertical element. The other element is the horizontal which states how is it that I belong to the body of Christ, the church on earth. And so we talked about the fact that union with Christ is always accompanied by communion with the saints in the body of Christ. And so the dilemma that we see in today's world in the church is this insecurity because of a lack of identity Uh, So often we see that uh, Christians who are professing Christians, they do not want to draw too near, lift the shade of their faith and their heart to the non-Christian peer group. So they're virtually unknown in one of the most essential parts of their being with that group, but neither do they want to really draw near and identify with a church, a group of Christians And so they're not really known in that group, so they're standing in this no man's land, neither being known well by a peer group, non-Christian, neither known well by a church group, and and sensing in the midst of that, I'm not sure who I am. I believe that's a fundamental thing that we need to, to nail down, both vertically and horizontally. And as I said last week, it, it, as old as the letter is, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians is incredibly relevant because indeed it addresses those two uh, spheres. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul really is reaching into all of his understanding to, to bring out under the Holy Spirit's inspiration this vertical question of how is it that the believer belongs to God through Christ? And then in chapters 4 to 6, he goes on to talk about how is it that we work that out in how we belong to each other in the church and how we live that out in our, in our ethics, in our morals, in our fellowship, in our friendship, and so on. You'll notice in, uh, there's a, bu- a blue piece of paper in your insert in your bulletin. And you'll notice at the top of that blue piece of paper, I put two verses from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 together. And, and uh, the reason I put them together is because they so very much correlate to what we're talking about this morning. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20 that God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly, in the heavenly realms. That is a a literal reality right now. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago after his death, was raised by God the Father. God the Father took his only begotten Son and put him, seated him right beside the throne in heaven. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, it says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Literally, spiritually, but literally, you and I right now are seated in Christ, right beside the Father in Jesus Christ. Whatever God the Father has done to his only begotten Son, he has done that to the believer in Jesus Christ. So incredibly intimate is the union that the believer has with Jesus Christ that Paul can use the same language about the believer as he does about his only son. That is incredible. That is just incredible language. Watch my knee. I quote there on that blue piece of paper the Statement that he says in his beginning of his little book called Sit, Walk, Stand, a commentary on the book of Ephesians. He says, The Christian life does not begin with walking. That comes in chapter 4 of Ephesians. It begins with sitting. Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. Thus, Ephesians opens with the statement that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. And we are invited at the very outset to sit down and enjoy what God has done for us, not to set out to try and attain it for ourselves. Isn't that amazing? We're invited, sit down, and enjoy what God has done for you. This is the picture that Paul paints. This is the picture of the Christian life that Paul paints. He starts with worship and praise in verse 3. Blessed be the The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He begins his letter with with doxology, praise and worship to God the Father for all that he's poured out on the church because of what Jesus has done. Now last week I shared an illustration with you. I took a Bible, a pew Bible, and and I put a piece of paper in the Bible. And I had on the piece of paper it said, Believer in Jesus Christ. And I put the believer, the the piece of paper, in the Bible, and I said, the Bible represents Christ. And I passed the Bible around, and and it got around, and then every once in a while, last week, I just said, where's that Bible? And then someone would raise their hand, they got the Bible. But whenever I said, where is the piece of paper, the answer I was looking for was, it's in the Bible. Because it didn't matter, you see, where the Bible was. What matters was, the, the piece of paper's in the Bible. And so, therefore, just as the believer is in Jesus Christ, and so therefore I am secure in Christ. Um, another illustration is that uh, you could be flying at forty thousand feet above above the air, above the earth, and what matters is that you're in the plane, right? Just don't get out of the plane because then you're in trouble. You see, what Paul is saying so often here in, this, in Ephesians is what matters is that you're in Christ. That's why he uses that phrase 11 times just in the opening long sentence from verses 3 to 14. 11 times he says, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. Because that is the security of the believer. That is who we really are. That is the, the Christian life defined, Really? I'd like to go back to that illustration with the book and the piece of paper, but this time around, I'm going to change it a little bit. I'm going to make the piece of paper a $20 bill. Okay, now i got your attention, right? And I'm going to make the Bible, this old German Bible that my dad passed down. It's from 1841. Okay, it's a book, a Bible that comes from Martin Luther translation, German Bible from 1841. But that's not good enough, so I'm going to go further with you so i'm gonna put this twenty dollar bill inside the bible right now but i want you to imagine something more than that i want you to imagine this is not an eighteen forty one german lutheran bible i want you to imagine that this what i'm holding here is actually a gutenberg bible i'm i'm asking you to think that in fact it's the only one in existence now the fact is that there are forty eight in existence okay this is the book I'm talking about that was published in 1455, and of the, of the hundreds that were published, only 48 exist. I'm just, I'm just saying to you, I want you to just think that there's one left. In 1997, Life magazine hired a whole bunch of historians and dozens of scholars And they asked them, as they prepared for the second millennium celebration, they asked them, what are the most important events and people of the last millennium? And they said, son, what are the hundred most important events and people in the last millennium? List them in order of priority, one to a hundred. Guess what number one was? The Gutenberg Bible. The Gutenberg Bible was labeled number one in the most important thing of all the millennium because with that Bible, the printing press was was created, the information age came, the illiterate middle-class people of Europe at that time was now made able to read, and all of a sudden, literacy became known and so on. So imagine that this is the only one left on earth. Now you see... That $20 bill doesn't seem so valuable, does it? You see, what we tend to to have happen, even in Christian circles, is that we make so much of ourselves, we make much of our faith and our ability and our works and our good deeds and our righteousness And somehow in the process of doing that, it really loses sight of what matters to Paul's religion because Paul said what he wants to make much of is Jesus Christ, you see. God says, I make much of my son and he must have the supremacy in all things at all times in every way because he's the only one worthy of it. And God says, the only way that your life is going to be made much of is if you are in my son. And that's why, over and over again in Ephesians and other Paul's letters, he over and over again says, in Christ, in him. You see, the only way that God blesses you and I is in and through his son, Jesus. It's the only way it happens. There is nothing that God ever can or will give you apart from giving it to you in His Son, Jesus Christ. This morning as we take a look at this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just reminded as I'm, I'm talking here, I'm just reminded downstairs this morning there was a group of parents and children, families with sunseekers, and they were doing a family blessing. They were learning how to bless their children And this is what we're reading about this morning in Ephesians. We're reading about how the Father blesses His children. And He says the way He does it is always through His Son, Jesus Christ. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to look at Ephesians 1. And we're going to talk about past, present, and future blessings. But before we get into it, I want to just make some observations about Ephesians 1. And uh, these are four points that I think might preface our study. Number one, I want you to remember that Paul is writing doxology, and that means he's writing worship. Uh, As I said before, this is all about leading the Ephesian church into worshiping God the Father and all the blessings that have come through Christ because of what God has done. Second thing is that Paul is writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ about their security, and he's trying to Reach out, and, and he's going to start in verse four that that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he's going back into eternity past, and then later on in the in the verse or in the sentence he goes to eternity future to talk about the inheritance that we have. See, Paul is Paul is talking about security for the believer, and in order to get that security that you and I need, you've got to look beyond yourself, and you've got to look beyond the here and now. So Paul goes back to before the world was, was created and he goes forward into the future when the inheritance in heaven is realized. Thirdly, Paul is writing as a missionary, church planter, disciple maker. Um, I would describe Paul that in all three terms. Missionary, church planter, disciple maker. That's what Paul is writing as. In other words, Paul is not writing as a theologian. Paul is not writing and saying, I better get going on the doctrine of election because the church is going to have a lot of questions about it. Why don't I start the Ephesian letter with that one? He's not writing as a theologian. He is a practitioner. He is in the fields of missions. He is, he, you know, the the bombs are dropping all around him, so to speak. Oh, Corinth, they got all those problems there. And over in Galatia, they got this going on. And in Ephesus, man, those people. You know, he is in the midst of it. He's writing these letters because the church needs to hear. They need to be corrected. They need to be encouraged. I can't be in all places at all times. I'm sending my messengers with my letters, and they're going to encourage the church. He had no idea that his letters would be collected and put in the New Testament. And so when we get on to our doctrinal dotting of our I's and crossing of our T's, we need to remember Paul is not writing as a theologian. So he uses some words in different ways in the same letter. And I'm not denying or denigrating in any way the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that used Paul and spoke authoritatively through Scripture. And then finally, I want to say that Paul did not expect the Ephesians to understand him (laughs) he didn't expect the Ephesians to understand him completely and the reason that I believe that is because right after this long sentence that goes from verse 3 to 14 in verse 15 he starts into a prayer and in the prayer he says I just pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you'll know him I pray that you'll have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. That the, You might know the hope to which you were called and so on. He is praying a capacity prayer because they don't have the capacity to understand the doctrine he's teaching in verses 3 to 14. So he prays later on, God, just please help him to get this because this is more caught than it is taught. So I say that as a preface to the message this morning And I say it partly because I want to disarm you of some of the baggage that you might come into this scripture in Ephesians 1 with. Some of the baggage that you might have come, and as we open up Ephesians 1, you might come to the text with is intellectual baggage. How is it that God could choose me, and yet I got free will to choose Him? Some of the Perhaps theological baggage that you come with or the denominational baggage. Well, I grew up night, and this is what we believe, you know, and so on and so forth. I want to disarm you of some of that because our goal this morning, as any morning, is to rightly handle the word of truth, to sit under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, to let Him have His way, speak into our hearts and minds, put aside the things that need to be renewed because they're maybe not fully truth, and enter into what God has to teach us. In systematic theology terms or language, Ephesians 1 is one of the very key texts that teaches the doctrine of election and predestination. And many have problems with it because they feel that it contradicts human freedom. And so many people have, have navigated so clearly around these teachings that they have ended up with a very false doctrine at times. And let me say at the outset that... that Regardless of what you believe about these doctrines, none of us as followers of Christ has the luxury of dismissing a passage in the Bible and simply not believing it. We don't have that choice. That's not one of the options, is just say, well, it's in here, but I just don't agree with it. (laughs) Sorry. You don't have that choice. You may not understand it. You may think, you may interpret it a certain way and disagree with me. That's fine. But you don't have the option of saying, well, I just don't agree with what Paul's saying. In a former church that I pastored one time, I had someone that would say that. I just don't agree with Paul. (laughs) What? You don't agree with Paul. Well, you're arguing with the Holy Spirit, not Paul. You see, we cannot, we cannot hold Scripture hostage to our rational faculties as much as we have a reasonable faith. We are not sovereigns. Honestly speaking, I want to say to you that I don't think that I have advanced intellectually any further in the past 20 to 25 years in my understanding of the doctrine of election. And I doubt that I will much farther this side of heaven. And so what I mean by that is that about 20 to 25 years ago, someone introduced me to the word in Greek, antinomy not to be confused with antinomianism which is lawlessness but antinomy means literally in the Greek against law and perhaps I'll let J.I. Packer define the word for it for us J.I. Packer wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God right he wrote it probably because some people would say well hey if God's sovereign chooses whatever he's gonna do then why evangelize Well, J.I. Packer writes in Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says, An antinomy is an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. And we have these in our lives. Sorry, but your little brain and my little brain aren't big enough to hold some of God doctrine stuff. And we have these things. I don't know about you, but you try to explain to me the Trinity and I'll, I'll listen to you. But I've gone as far as I can and I know that there's not three gods, but I know that I talk and pray to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an antinomy. Scriptures teach them. The scriptures never seem to try and explain how these two doctrines of God's sovereignty and election and human responsibility and faith correlate. When I was in Bible school, I had a systematic theology professor named Phil Taylor. Some of you probably were at Winnipeg Bible College at the time with Phil Taylor. Anybody know Phil Taylor? Okay, one. (laughs) I'm really old, I guess. Phil Taylor would explain this this way. He would say that, that on this side of heaven that the unbeliever that is looking for salvation sees on this side of heaven, on this side of the gates of heaven, in in the portals up high listed on the gate, it says from Romans 10, Whosoever will may come. But for every believer who enters into Jesus Christ and gets through that gate one day and is in glory will look back at that same gate, and on the inside of the gate it will say, chosen in him before the creation of the world. I don't know if that helps you that's great. <clears throat> if th- if that helps you understand that or put that together that's fine. I think we got to live with this tension. We got to live with this tension. I don't understand it. The scriptures don't seem <clears throat> to give us airtight answers. I like what Charles Spurgeon said Charles Spurgeon was asked one day if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. And he said this. He said, I wouldn't try. I never try and reconcile friends. I like that. See, that's the point that we must grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not endless in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends. They work together. John Stott said it this way Now everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. Didn't I choose God? Somebody asks indignantly, to which we must answer Yes, indeed you did, and freely but only because in eternity God had first chosen you. Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries." Another man by the name of Joel Beek writes, and he says this, "...just as the rails of a train track just as the rails of a train track which run parallel to each other appear to merge in the distance so the doctrines of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility which seem separate from each other in this life will merge in eternity our task is not to force their merging in this life but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly I don't know if that helps you but but I wanted to say some of that up front as we open the pages of Ephesians 1 and as we explore the mystery of God in his gospel and in his election, let's turn now to chapter 1 of Ephesians and let's look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Ephesians and chapter 1, and let's begin by looking at some of these past blessings that God has blessed every believer with in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Paul says. In verse 4, for he chose us, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the, the one he loves. For every believer that just read these words or heard me read them, for every believer That just read these words you know and you understand that the first blessing that was given to us in Christ Jesus the first blessing was that before God ever said let there be light that before everything anything existed you were in the mind of God and God chose you that's incredible that's just mind escaping that God had you in his mind before he created anything else and God chose you before he created anything before he he created you he chose us before the creation of the world why did he choose us or what purpose for which purpose did he choose us for it says in the scripture he chose us to be holy and blameless that's why he chose you he chose you that you would be holy and blameless positively and negatively stating the same thing positively set apart negatively stainless fault-free that's what we are in christ see right away when we read the very opening presentation of this idea of election right away we we understand the folly of some people who reason like this well i grew up in a christian home i accepted jesus have been baptized So I'm obviously one of the chosen. I've been predestined. And so I can go and live however I like. It doesn't matter what I do because, hey, I'm in. I got my card. (laughs) That's folly. That is foolishness. You see, because the, the very... Choosing that leads to your adoption which leads to your redemption in Christ Jesus and leads to that new nature that you were given by the Holy Spirit is a holy nature that desires everything that God desires and hates everything that God hates and yes you and I can still sin while we're in this body but oh we long for that holiness. We long to be like Jesus. That's the new nature we've been given. You were chosen. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and to be blameless in Him. And so that's what we pursue and we come and we repent of our sin and we turn to Christ and we say, oh Lord, be for me what I can't be for myself in righteousness. The next blessing that Paul mentions is is our adoption into the family of God through Christ. And Paul says in this passage, he chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. He, in love, predestined us. Paul is saying here that based on God the Father choosing us, He then, in love, predestined us. The doctrine of election, you see, takes on a completely different feel for me when I understand it in the terms of loving adoption. So no longer is this idea of the the doctrine of election something that comes out of the dry pages of church history, Augustine, John Calvin, all that stuff. No longer is it back there in kind of archaic uh, propositional statements, but rather it is now in in life-giving relationship with my Father, my Heavenly Father, who adopted me. Now, I've known many adoptions over the years. I've known many people that have adopted, and it seems to me that there are always three things in common with every adoption. First of all, the parents adopt some, a child because of love. I don't know any parents that are adopting a child because they want to get rich or because they want to make the child suffer or, you know, every adoption I've ever heard of, it's because of love that they have adopted. And it wasn't usually some kind of inherent thing in the child that made them want to love them. In many cases, they didn't even have a chance to meet the child before they set their love on that child, that picture, that name, in that country, in that orphanage. Secondly about adoptions is that the child never chooses the parents. I've never heard of adoption where, where they line up all the parents and the child sits back and says what kind of house do you live in it's it's always that the parents choose the child and then thirdly the parents go into an adoption most that i've known with the full expectation it's not going to be easy but come what may they have decided that come what may they are going to treat this child This not related by blood child as though they were related by blood and as a natural child. That's what they've decided up front. Every adoption I've ever known, that's the way it is. In fact, in Roman law, Paul would have been familiar with this. In Roman law, it stated clearly that adopted children enjoyed all the same rights and benefits as natural children. So now friends, this is how adoption is to be understood in Ephesians chapter 1 four and five that's how we're adopted into God's family you see you see if you read the Bible you'll know that that God has only one only begotten son and all the rest of us if we're gonna get into the family of God we don't get in any other way except through adoption I mean how do you become part of a family you are either begotten into the family or you're adopted into the family. We're adopted into the family through Jesus Christ. And when God put his love upon you, there was nothing inherent in us. God did not, this is idea. Some people have a foreknowledge. Some people think, well, God just knows everything. He looked down the road and he said, Woo, that one. I want on my team. Uh-uh, sorry. There was nothing. There was nothing inherent in any one of us that made God love us. Now, if that takes a blow on your pride, sorry. In fact, the Bible goes even further than that. In Romans chapter 5, it says that while we were still sinners and enemies of God, he sent his son. You weren't just a cute little orphan somewhere. You You were an enemy of God when he chose to set his love on you for no reason inherent in you <laughs> he set his love on us he knew it wasn't going to be easy and so he gave his, his own son's life he predetermined that he would treat us just as he was going to treat his only son Every blessing that he gave his son, he put us in his son so that every blessing that he gave his son, he would also give to us. This is unheard of. This message is not found anywhere else in the world, no other religion, no other philosophy. This is the gospel of grace. John Piper writes this. He says, Adoption is one of the most profound realities in the universe. It is greater than the world. It is before the world in the plan of God. It will outlast the world as we know it. Indeed, it is greater than the universe and is rooted in God's own nature. God did not look down from heaven one day in the midst of his human experiment and say, It's not going very well. I better create an idea. I'll adopt some kids and make a select group of the best. That's not what God did. God did. The Bible does not suggest that anywhere. In eternity past, he set his love on a group of people that would become his children through his son, Jesus Christ. He put them in his son so that he would indeed treat them as his son and in no way lesser than his son. So every time you, you blow it and you get forgiven by the grace of God, you can say, I don't deserve this forgiveness because it's only because I am in Jesus Christ that I get this forgiveness. And we're adopted then through Christ. You see, in many adoptions, we get the idea that, that parents adopt so that they can make much of the child, you know, raise his self-esteem and... And help him become a better person and get him into a culture and a place and so on that maybe is going to have some more haves and less have nots. In God's adoption, we're adopted into the family. What are we going to make much of? We are to make much of the Father's love. He's not adopted us into His family to make much of us. We make much of His love, His grace. The eldest brother, Jesus, we make much of Him because it's in Him that has secured our identity in the family. It's incredible. And every three times in this passage, he ends with this, this little, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. See, that's, that's, that's where every river flows to for Paul. Paul. Every river flows to the praise of His glorious grace. Before we go on and talk about the present blessings, I want to just stop and for a moment say something I discovered while I was studying this past week. And I had to kind of go in and do a little bit of my own study when I read this because I, I questioned it. I, I read a, 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 a book this past week that talked about the word Father as the name Father is used of God in the Old Testament. So you've got all the Old Testament, two-thirds of your Bible, 39 books, and in all of those 39 books of the Old Testament, the word Father is used of God just 14 times. And when it's used of the Father, it is only used by Israel collectively, corporately. Never, ever by an individual. Never in the Old Testament do we find someone saying, My Father. And then we open the pages of the New Testament and what do we read? Jesus comes bursting onto the canvas of the scene of history and he says, Oh, my Father. And, he, and, and 60 times in the Gospels we read Jesus, individual Jesus, saying, My Father. That's no wonder the Pharisees and the Jews were upset with him because no one talks like that to God. But he didn't just say Father, Greek Father, formal Father, he said in Aramaic, he said, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. Paul, Paul goes on this theme a lot in Galatians, in Romans, and Ephesians here. He goes on this theme, why? Because that's, a, that's the spirit of adoption. He says in Romans, he says, We all have been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Daddy. See, we get, to, we get to have the same benefits in relationship to the Father as Jesus, the only begotten, has. Why is that? Why is that? Because he set his love on you before you were created? Because he decided in eternity past he chose you to be holy and blameless. What a message. What a message. J.I. Packer talks about this in his book, Knowing God. He says, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And then he says this. It kind of blew me away. He said this. Father is the Christian name Father is the Christian name for God. What are the present blessings that we enjoy? Briefly, let's take a look at verses 7 and 8, then we're going to be looking at the future blessings next week. The present blessings that we have here by Paul articulated in verse 7, are in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The main, the main idea, the main concept that He communicates as a present blessing that is ours through Christ is redemption, that word redemption, which means to be, to be ransomed, to be purchased. It was used of slaves that that were in slavery all their lives, had no hope, no destiny other than that, except then someone came along and they bought them out of slavery and gave them their freedom. He says he connects that redemption then to the word forgiveness of sins. So that idea almost is connected to the idea, not only were we slaves enslaved by sin, but we were also somehow under the wrath of God because of that, and then we got forgiveness. Of sins through his blood Jesus Christ what an incredible concept our debt is paid we were prisoners of sin we were on death row we were under the wrath of a holy God a just judge and then a redeemer comes along and he pays a ransom price and he takes the fall and we're, we're, we're allowed to go free that's the gospel That's what Jesus did a couple of weeks ago, some of us were in Minneapolis at a conference, and we heard a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson preaching, and he was talking about the word justification. And he said that in ancient, in older days in Scotland, that when someone was on death row, when someone was executed in order to satisfy justice, it usually took place at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. And that at that very minute, the execution would take place. And as soon as the executor knew that the person was dead, they would take a, a, a poster and they would go to their prison cell where their cell was, and they would post on that prison cell something that said something like this Angus McDonald was justified on this day at 8 a.m. How how is it that he was justified? Well, he was justified because he now had paid his debt to society as a murderer, as whatever kind of a criminal, guilty, and charged with, with a, the death penalty, he then, because he had paid his debt to society, he was free. He was justified. We could say that similarly, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, a sign could have been posted on his empty tomb, on his tomb that said, Jesus is now justified, and all who are in Christ Jesus are justified along with him. If we want to use the word redemption, we could say it this way. We could imagine a man on death row awaiting execution for crimes he was guilty of. Someone coming along and dying in his place and allowing the criminal to go free. What a message. Amazing love. How can it be? that, that How does it finish? That my God should die for me. Well, it's all for the praise of His glorious grace. Would you pray with me this week that God would open our eyes? You see, we, I can't, we can't preach this, we can't teach this. Would you pray that God will open our eyes? Will you pray that God will make us so secure, so secure in Him and in, in, in relationship with one another? that nothing's gonna shake our faith would you would you pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we might know him better don't you want to know him better I'm gonna ask you to stand with me right now and we're gonna read the doxology from Romans chapter 11 and then we're gonna close with a song this is what I feel like when I get onto these subjects I think that's what Paul felt like in Romans 9 to 11, and that's why he writes this. So let's read it together. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.